Welcome, everyone, to From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast about the television show Lost. Uh, I am your co-host, Ben Lundy, and my other co-host is Kevin Ford. Kevin, how are you today? I'm good. I'm in a good mood. I'm a little tired of cold weather, ready for spring to come, no matter what that that pesky groundhog had to say about it. But uh, otherwise, doing well. How about yourself? Uh, I'm good, and I'm glad you mentioned the groundhog. I think that uh, you and I make probably a bigger deal of the groundhog than an average people because of our love for a certain early 1990s comedy that has sort of commemorated that that bizarrely American holiday, and to which I would be referring to Groundhog Day by Bill Murray. I'm glad you clarified. Star, starring, Bill, starring Bill Murray. Well, I, I always think it's funny because I'll even show friends the text that uh, it's, an, it's a, a, a tradition that, that Kevin and I will text each other quotes from that movie on Groundhog Day every year. I think we've pretty much done that every year for the last several years. So, yes, we, we saw the Groundhog – or I, I watched it. I don't know if you did, but I saw him see a shadow. Much to the chagrin of everybody I work with because we work outdoors for a living. So six more weeks of winter. But what can you do? I'm actually not sure if I've ever watched The Groundhog. No. Um, no. This is, this is actually the first year that I, I, I actually talked to somebody who's been there for like the Punxsutawney like festival and actually made me almost want to go up to it sometime as crazy as that sounds. I mean, I guess it'd be a cool like cultural touchstone to Exactly. Experience. That's like I, this uniquely American thing that's so bizarre. Right. I remember being a cool thing in elementary school, and I think I heard somebody say there's like a second location where they do like a groundhog sighting. I'm not sure where exactly. The, they, have, they have satellite groundhogs. Right. So other peers <laughs> can, can uh, experience this this very unique only American quote unquote <laughs> holiday. This holiday where they, as as Bill Murray said, they they used to pull out the rat and they used to eat it. I think wasn't my, wasn't my ringtone on your phone for a while uh, a line from Groundhog's Day? Oh, it, it still is. When when Kevin calls me, which doesn't happen too often because we live in this world where I think you and I communicate mostly by either Facebook messages or texting. But when you do actually give me a a uh, audio phone call, the first thing I hear is Phil. Phil Connors, <laughs> and I feel like as been as has been tradition, I post that on social media every Groundhog's totally. Day. Totally, I don't know why, but that's that's always <laughs> it. Always gets gets me a good chuckle and a, and a few people, uh, a few <laughs> some something, something fun to to wake up to. So. I don't know, it's dumb, but uh, no, it, it's dumb, but it's great, and it's and it, it gave us it, Groundhog Day, if nothing else, gave us a great quasi time travel comedy movie that uh, we can celebrate because both you and I are huge Bill Murray fans, especially that particular era. Yeah. And by the time you, by the time most people listen to this, the groundhogs day is like three or so weeks old, but uh, right. (laughs) So they're in the middle of the six weeks of winter. Exactly. What better time to curl up with your Hulu subscription or what have you and uh, watch a classic television show like lost when all that bad weather's out there. So I'm with that you. is my segue <laughs> into our two episodes for today, which we have hearts and minds, which uh, Kevin is going to recap for us. And then uh, special, which I'm going to do the recap for. So did you uh, have anything you wanted to start off with Kevin with these episodes or you want to dive right in? I'm good for diving right in. Go for it. So Hearts and Minds is an episode about Boone. He's the the central focus of the flashback. And I, and I liked watching these two episodes because it was two characters we had yet to see in flashbacks for. Yep. We've only had a couple repeats. I think just Jack and Kate have gotten the repeat treatment in flashback episodes. But still, we're only on episodes 13 and 14 of the series. So it still seemed a little early to mm-hmm. do flashbacks, even if it is with two of the, the bigger characters of the show. 
Uh, but this episode was written by Carlton Cuse and Javier Grillo Marchois. I'm going to guess this is how you pronounce that last if, name. If you've chosen to adopt my pronunciation, I, I, I won't stop you. Uh, that's my best stab at it. Okay. And this is actually Carlton Cuse's first writing credit for Lost after yes. joining the series on the seventh episode. It's that's a that's a nice something to to remember that this is Carlton Cuse's first writing credit for the series. Something pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And and Carlton Cuse, of course, uh, like you just said, uh, joined uh, several episodes back, but uh, slowly made himself more and more of a, a, a presence uh, on the show to the point where uh, later on in the series, he and Damon Lindelof were basically exclusively co-writing all of the the season premieres and finales. And so forth. So it's kind of an interesting that he started off on an episode like this, uh, but he had already sort of been taking the reins behind the scenes bef- well before this episode. Yeah, and that's and that's not all that dissimilar. Like if you go back and I, I say this as a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if you look at all the seasons, pretty much the premiere and finale are almost always written by Joss Whedon, uh, uh, m- maybe with a co-writing credit, but it's just because he knows how the series is supposed to kind of come full circle. So yeah. Who better to to wrap to write it and wrap it up than the the show creator? So it kind of makes sense for Cuse yeah. and Lindelof to be there. Well, guys. they they know their vision. They know their vision, and and they've got even though you have a great writers' room full of people that can pull off you know all the stuff that comes in between, it just makes sense that that with those uh, those crucial most crucial episodes that they'd be you know right there steering. So mm-hmm. well, so the previous on this episode reminds us that. Locke and Boone discovered a hatch, which, as we noted last week's episode, the the briefcase episode with Kate all but ignored was not really touched upon. Mm-hmm. So now we're back at it. They're reminding us this happened. And I'm sure Lost fans are rejoicing that we're finally getting back to to this hatch that they discovered. Hatch. But before we get to that, we have to see Boone watching Shannon as Saeed gives her uh, a gift of shoes that he had found. They're, they're being a little flirtatious. At the same time, Hurley's giving Boone a bit of a hard time because he and Locke have been going back into the woods saying they're hunting for boar and they have not come back with any boar. And of course, we know really they're going back into the woods to look at this hatch. So how, how did you like this uh, scary Boone here? As I didn't think he was you can get. <laughs> uh, which, which is actually, you know, he, he then after and I'm, I'm going to talk about this stuff before getting to the flashback stuff. But he goes up to Saeed and tells him to stay away from Shannon. And Said basically just kind of smiles at him like, A, you can't be serious. Right. B, really, what are you going to do? <laughs> I, I think I, the I, audience I, is thinking the same thing. Right. We I, we saw how Saeed tortured Sawyer. We right. know that Boone can't do jack squat to this guy. And, and fortunately, Locke kind of saves Boone from a butt kicking when he appears and tells Boone, oh, hey, I found some uh, some fresh tracks in the forest. Let's go investigate those. Hey, um, hey, Mr. Hardened Iraqi soldier. I'm going to I'm going to take care of you with my my lifetime of experience at country club tennis matches. That's my impression of scary Boone because that's about as scary as he gets. Exactly. Lock and Boone do indeed go into the forest to go look at the hatch again. And Boone tells him about how people are kind of suspicious. But Lock doesn't really mind because he says there's plenty of fish. There's plenty of fruit. People are going to survive. And I'm glad he made that point because it would seem a little negligent that they would just be going and not coming (laughs) back with food. So I'm glad they at least made the point that. The boar is not a necessity. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a nice item to have, but it is certainly not a necessity at this point. So I appreciated that. They're essentially not doing much at it, but staring at it. And Boone seems frustrated they haven't done much aside from that. And Locke tells the story of Michelangelo looking at a marble block every day for four months before turning into the statue of David. And I don't want to get redundant and give a lot of these scenes that uh, when, when Locke uses these kind of stories for analogies. 
but these are always some of my favorite scenes in the show. So well, these are, these are the ones that, that sort of frame Locke as the, uh, you know, the, the Island guru, this uh, font of wisdom for everyone else, which, you know, if they knew his life prior to the Island, he probably just picked this up watching a lot of television or something. And as they're discussing this, Boone is also venting his frustrations to Locke about Saeed hitting on Shannon, which Locke couldn't understand why he would possibly care about that. Yeah. And this carries into when they're walking back to the beach and Boone seems insistent that he wants to tell Shannon that they found the hatch. Locke doesn't really understand why. And he asks why Boone cares so much about her, which is kind of an odd question to ask about your sister. But I think in this in this case, it's warranted because he's so insistent about wanting to tell her about the hatch. Well, was he was he asking why you care so much about her or why why I, I thought it was more of a like why do you care so much about what she thinks of you was it more like that I think his question was why do you care about her so much but I think okay. his intent was kind of what you're you're right. um, insinuating yeah and and Boone says you don't know her she's smart and special in a lot of ways and he doesn't like lying to her and insists she can keep a secret and Locke really thoroughly asked Boone if he's sure he wants to tell her. And he seemingly agrees that Boone can do so. But as soon as Boone turns his back, thud, back of his knife goes <laughs> into the, the the handle of his knife, I should say, goes into to Boone's head and knocks him out. And I think this is supposed to be something that we see and and kind of question Locke's character here because we still don't sure. really know too much about him. Right. Well, and Locke, yeah, Locke, he, he so much in the uh, especially in the first season, but uh, he vacillates back and forth from being this sort of, you know, uh, Gandhi type, this font of wisdom, like I said, that, that you would go to. And, uh, y- you know, he, he seems to know the right thing to tell everybody to set them on their path on the island. But then there's also this darker side of Locke. And so the, the show seems, I think, is just starting to sort of tease that, you know, at this point. Um, Definitely. You know, because, because you're right. I mean, there's like something, well, um, the uh, I think it was this episode or the episode I did, but where they're talking about, um, oh no, it was this one. It was the scene where this is the scene we're in right now, where he talks about, you know, we're going to need Saeed on our side. We don't want to make an enemy out of him, and that sort of thing. Um, was getting really, uh, I was getting vibes of like that. He almost feels like he's making his own little personal army, or that he's on this, he's hell bent on some mission that has nothing to do with what is what everybody else is doing. Yeah, it's true. So there's, yes, yeah, so there's weirdness there. Definitely some weirdness, but I, you can kind of understand in the next scene where Boone wakes up. He's all tied up by Locke. Boone has one arm tied behind his back and one in front of him, and he's on his knees. And Locke is making this concoction in a bowl, and he ends up putting some of it on the back of Boone's head, basically telling him, "This will make it so the wound I gave you with the the butt of my knife not to get infected." And he leaves a knife right by him and says, you know, you can cut yourself free with the proper motivation. And of course, in very Locke fashion, he doesn't just leave the knife by him. He throws the knife right into the soil right next to him. Perfectly lands. Yeah, I don't know if we talked about this ever, but Terry O'Quinn, he used to spend a huge amount of his time on the lost set practicing with his knives. Um, there's a really good, there's a good uh, behind the scenes clip of him teaching like the cameraman how, how to throw a knife so that it sticks into the, the tree. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, he, he, he got it. I, mean, he, I don't know if the, when they actually like the shots, the footage that actually made it to the show was actually him doing that or if it was a stuntman. But 
he he was able to do it. Like he shows it on a, a behind the scenes clip. He has like one of the crew guys pin a dollar to a tree and he puts his knife right through the dollar. It's pretty cool. So Locke goes ahead and he he leaves Boone behind telling him that that camp is four miles due west. And as he's walking back, he stumbles across Saeed in the woods, who's trying to make some sense out of the maps he stole from Russo's camp. And Locke notices the compass he's using is the same one that Locke used when he was in Boy Scouts. And he instead gives Saeed his much more advanced compass and says, I don't need this anymore. I kind of have the directions here figured out. I don't think I made it that far in Boy Scouts to to like fashion my own compass the way Saeed was. No, were you ever in were you ever in Boy Scouts? I did Tiger Cubs in kindergarten, but I hated uh-huh. camping, or at least the idea of camping so much I bailed after that. I made it just as far enough to learn how to train my dog. In I think I became a wolf. Uh, there's like okay. different ranks, but I didn't get up to Weebelos, which is what apparently Locke did. He said he wasn't a very popular. I liked how he said he wasn't very popular because I guess. I don't know. I never associated being a Cub Scout with being like nerdy, but maybe that's because I'm a nerd. I don't know. My few friends who who did Boy Scouts, one of them talked about how everybody played Magic the Gathering, so they can't be that cool. Okay, there you go. All right. Well, I'm, 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 a picture is forming, so there you go. And for the record, I played Magic the Gathering. I'm a, I, I still would play it if it weren't so darn expensive. So this is <laughs> not. I just want to make that very clear. Oh no, I have I have I have so many friends that played magic when I was younger and it, the the cost ended up getting to a lot of them. Yep. Once uh, they started so that, adulting. Yeah, please don't use that word. So eventually Boone it, there's too much pain in, in the in his arm, his wrist behind his back cuz he tries to lean forward to grab the knife, but he eventually hears Shannon screaming and that's enough motivation to get the knife to free himself. He runs, finds Shannon tied up in a tree, frees her. And he also hears a monster coming after them. So they go and hide behind some trees. And there's a great scene where the monster that we can't see starts thrashing at the trees and it cuts to commercial. So typical tension builder before going to commercial there. And they eventually exit the tree once things quiet down. And Saeed comes up to Jack in the woods and he asks them about, hey, what direction are we in? Yada, yada. Basically shows him the compass that Locke gave Saeed and said the compass is off. And he feels that Locke purposely gave him a defective compass to mess up his sense of direction. Oh, does, oh, do you think so? That's what I gathered from this okay. scene because of the scenes that are to follow. That's kind of what I gathered is Saeed. It doesn't trust the compass that he gave him. And this is compounded with everybody on the beach saying, you know, your Hurleys and whoever else saying, why are, why are, um, Boone and Locke not coming back with any more. We haven't got, we, I think we may have already passed the scene, but I haven't discussed it yet. But um, Kate even theorizes that they're finding Bourne keeping it for themselves. For themselves that's right. Yeah. So, there, so there's a yeah. lot of distrust going on with Locke and Boone right now. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I, I mean, that's a perfectly valid interpretation. Uh, I think Jack says, what does that mean? And Saeed says, it means that this compass is defective, but I thought he was just sort of, being a little facetious, kind of like when he was saying like the whispers were just the wind or whatever. He's sort of saying, yeah, I'm not willing to say out loud yet that something really weird's going on here, but I think that something really weird's going on here. But you interpret it as he literally felt that it was defective and he was given a defective compass by lock. That's interesting. There's no wrong way to interpret that, I think. So, well, well, and here's why. So the next two scenes are that I'm going to talk about are Jack goes to the beach where Locke is sitting and talks to him. Oh, yeah. 
he asks him where Boone is and Locke says he hasn't seen him lately. And Jack says, well, you know, he's been attached to your hip lately. And Locke just looks down his hip and says, nope, no Boone, which is <laughs> a really good retort. But, you know, he, he Locke's being normal. He's being playful with Jack. Jack's treating him normally. It, it doesn't seem like he's being, in, you know, inquisitive or trying to question him too hard. But Jack does ask about a boar and Locke says that he feels mm-hmm. that the, the boar have adapted and they're now migrating out of their valley. So then another person Jack talks to about Locke is Charlie, who he's secretly giving aspirin to deal with the pain of his withdrawals. And he asks Charlie, what do you think about Locke as a person? Because we can still see Locke kind of sitting in the distance. And Charlie thinks he's kind of crazy, but Locke did save his life. And he says if there's one person he put his faith in to save them all, it is Locke. And I think that sort of reaffirms Jack's suspicion and, and kind of quells him to think, would he indeed give Saeed a, a compass that didn't work on purpose? And I think having that vow of confidence from Charlie sort of steers him back in the, in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I didn't piece those, all those scenes together as well as you did. Cause you mean, you did the recap and as the audience knows, sometimes we do things out of order with the recap. We just kind of figure out what works together the most logically, but yeah, it sounds like he kind of there. There are there's sort of the beginnings here of Jack starting to sort of try and figure Locke out a little bit, which I think it makes sense is starting to happen now because there he, he's Locke is starting to do some things that seem a little suspicious and not just kooky, you know, like you know, kind of disappearing into the woods for hours and days at a time and not bringing back any boar, you know, something's, something's going on. So Jack sort of being the leader is doing his due diligence and kind of trying to gauge what people think of Locke. You know, like he said, we haven't had a chance to talk in a while, but really their only interactions so far that that much have been like the episode when they were chasing after Ethan. And prior to that, the episode where they were talking about, uh, you know, where, where uh, Locke helped him or pulled him up from the ledge when he was chasing after the vision of his father but they haven't had a huge ton of interaction at this point. Exactly. Yeah, not not a ton of interaction here. So I think this was this was good. There hasn't been enough interaction or relationship built between the two of them that Jack would still feel suspicious. Yet. Yeah. Like right. but I feel like there's I feel like there's little droplets of that. Like you said with the scene with Saeed, you know. Yeah. And I and I do appreciate that Jack didn't jump to conclusions and go you know, angrily go interrogate Locke. He That's did his true. investigating first and asked people who would know better about Locke. That almost seems out of character for Jack. <laughs> a little bit, although I'll talk about that in a second. Back in the force, Boone and Shannon are walking together, and Shannon's pushing Boone about what they've been doing in the force, knowing it just is about the boar. And Boone finally breaks down, tells Shannon about the hatch. This is when they, they hear the monster coming back. They make a run for it. Shannon gets caught, and Boone later finds her dead in the river. Ripped up, bloody to shreds, sad face. <laughs> and I got I to gotta admire the the... Uh, the camera work uh, in this where uh, she's running, she's running, she's running. And then something just lifts her up and the camera kind of stops. We don't follow the camera up because they're not going to let us see the monster yet. Right. Right. So you just see like a couple of limbs swinging, you know, a couple of human limbs swinging uh, from the top of the screen. And you're like, okay, she's getting horribly whatever. Um, But they, but they still won't let you get a look at the monster. Yeah, it is very good camera work, and I kind of blended two <laughs> scenes together. But it is it is pretty emotional when Boone finds her on the rocks as he sees oh, yeah. this trail of blood going in the river, and then she's sure. clawed to pieces. Yeah, it's a it's it's our first big death here on Lost Ben. Well, and something I mean, I, and and of course our audience has seen seen the whole episode. So, but um, but one thing I was going to say is that it was around this time that there were rumors that there was going to be an upcoming death on the show. 
So I, that's, this might have been, uh, you know, ha- had something to do with that. But the producers were saying, yeah, this is not a show where all the 14 regulars are safe. It, this is not that kind of show. So I think people are more used to that now. Like with shows like The Walking Dead, it's like it's not a question of if a, a regular is going to die this season. It's how many, you know? Yeah, definitely. So so you're you're theorizing this is a little bit of a red herring. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. So Boone finds Locke by a campfire alone. He tries to stab Locke with a knife, but Locke holds him back. And Boone says that Shannon died in uh, his arms. And then Locke asks, okay, so why is there no blood on you? And Boone looks at his arms. There's no blood. And he turns his head and sees that Shannon and Saeed are fraternizing over some water. And it turns out the mixture Locke gave him for the back of his head was actually to make him hallucinate. Locke also says, oh, is that what you saw? You saw Shannon die? Mm -hmm. And... Why did Boone see Shannon die? Well, let's go to the flashback. Ugh, <laughs> this friggin' Hey, flashback. real quickly, before we jump into the flashback, because I know how much you're dying to get to this flashback. <laughs> but did you did you have any inkling at any point that it was uh, like a, a dream sequence before it was revealed at the end of the episode? Do you remember from the first time you watched? Yeah, and I think it's just because I felt like the death was coming too soon. Uh-huh. It, it was a little was too just, abrupt. Yeah, some, something about it just didn't feel right. Yeah, and I also think there was something like, why is Shannon out in the woods alone? That seems very un-Shannon. Uh-huh. You know, well, it's I, weird because – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I guess you could chalk it up to her being curious about what Boone and Locke are really doing and going to explore now, but I feel like she would have gotten Saeed or somebody to go with her. Well, that's true. I, w- I think she wouldn't have ventured in the forest without Saeed, and I, and I guess it, it, it this plays mm-hmm. back and forth not just with your – with what's reality versus what's a, a vision, but also like – that whole thing of Locke's trustworthiness because it, it takes it swings you one way and then back the other. You're thinking, you know, if if you do buy the whole scenario, you know, of of her being tied up out there, you know, in, in one sense, I'm thinking, well, you know, Boone he tied Boone up and left him out in the middle of nowhere, and he's trying to make a point, and he feels threatened by the fact that Boone wants to tell Shannon about the hatch. Maybe he is capable of like, you know going up to Shannon while she's on the beach or off away from other people, clubbing her over the head, dragging her out into the woods and tying her up to make a point to Boone. Who knows? You know, like if you're, if you're just getting to know this character, then at the end it swings you back the other way of like, well, no, he didn't do that. He is kind of crazy. He did this crazy thing with the hallucinogen, but it was to make a point to Boone and it didn't actually endanger anybody's life. Yeah, no, that, that all makes sense to me. And it's, it's interesting. And you know, I, Again, how did Locke know how to make that concoction? <laughs> right. I don't know if they teach that on Animal Planet, but uh, somehow or other. That was, that was a thing, too, early on in the season, a lot of, or a lot of the series. A lot of people were like, you know, we saw this flashback where he was this kind of, you know, washed up cubicle jockey, right? Like, how did he learn all this stuff? But I guess, to be perfectly honest, I knew people in, in high school and college who – would have like I'm not talking about like really crazy out there like wacko stuff, but they'd have like survival books and stuff like that just because they were interested in it. So I don't know, but the pace thing is a little bit, it's a little bit out there. It's it's just one of those things where a, a little bit early on I'm watching this and thinking is Locke going to be the do, like the Dusex Machina character or whenever they need an explanation, just Locke's going right. to somehow have known how to do this or that or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And I, and I guess it doesn't it doesn't get that absurd, but all right. So this friggin' flashback. Let's talk about this. All right. So we start off, and Boone's at his Richie Rich family's house. 
playing with some some good looking blonde girl. Don't really know if it's his fiance, a girlfriend, a friend, a sibling, whatever. They've just been playing tennis. They're walking up to the pool to have a glass of water. When he gets a call, that's from Shannon. She's crying. She's yelling at someone to get away from her. Boone says he'll come get her, and she tells him that she's in Sydney, Australia. So Boone flies down, comes to a house to find a sister, and she's getting ready to go out. You could tell like a club or a party or something. When another man named Brian approaches, and she just tells him, you can just leave. It's fine. And she brushes her hair aside to reveal there's a bruise on her forehead. Boone gives her the requested space, seemingly smart enough to know things could get worse if he does not. So he goes to the police and they say they really can't do much about Shannon's situation without more to go on. And just then two policemen bring in a handcuffed Sawyer who's yelling, how come nobody wants to hear my side of the story? (laughs) And and, uh, the police officer says, now if the guy who hit your sister was like that, maybe we could do a little something. (laughs) Uh, But you could tell the officer's not really, you could tell he's not really interested and just says, you know, without any physical evidence or a direct complaint, we really can't do anything. And it's it's with the, the the talk back and forth with the police officer. Uh, he asks why they have different last names, and you discover that Shannon's <clears throat> actually Boone's stepsister. They're not blood related, and now, I knew they, exactly what they were going when they said that. Well, but they are, but they did already establish that on the on the island, though, didn't they? Prior to this, possibly. I'm pretty sure she said at some point, like you know, he he says like she's my sister, and. And she goes stepsister or something like that. I, I I don't think that's a surprise to this episode. But what comes next is definitely a surprise. Yeah. Well, so something I read about the episode made it implied that I think they wanted to spice up a little something with Boone and Shannon here, give uh-huh. a little extra umph to the characters. And I think that they kind of decided, well, we can just make them step siblings and do what we were going to do. So so right. you might be right. I can't remember exactly. I can't remember. But either way, it's not that big a deal. So Boone tries to find Brian on his own and tell him to break to to stay away from her and he ends up bribing him for fifty thousand dollars to do so and when boone comes to the house to get shannon they can leave australia seeing brian is still there and seeing shannon there he kind of puts together that this was all a ruse a setup by shannon to get the fifty thousand dollars for her mom and apparently shannon feels that when her father passed away her mother kept what was what should have been shannon's share of the money along with everything else boone calls her a bitch because she's apparently done this before Brian pummels him. Shannon gets Brian away from Boone. Boone goes away. And then this is the last flashback scene is really the one that's the most uncomfortable where Boone's in his hotel room in Australia and Shannon comes to the room. She's drunk. She tells she's crying, saying that Brian took the money and ran. Shannon tells Boone that the reason why he brought the money is because that Boone is in love with her. And Boone denies this. And Shannon begins kissing him on the cheek. And then they start making out and they lay down on the bed. And it's implied more goes on. We don't see anything, but you see Shannon getting dressed after whatever happened. And she said, she's going to make some alibi. They can tell her mom and they can go back the way things were were. basically pretend nothing happened. And Boone Boone doesn't seem to like the idea and makes a comment out. Things are always Shannon's decision. (laughs) I have a question for you, Ben. Okay. Has there ever been a less sexy uh, love scene? (laughs) Um, I I'm, Maybe, but I haven't, I don't know that I've seen it. Um, if there is, I, I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's hard to talk about and think about because, you know, we do live in this world with marriages, with kids coming into the marriage from previous marriages and stuff like that. And, and that can complicate things. People that aren't blood relatives. One thing I, and I've, I've talked to, 
you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this episode and everything too. And they're saying, well, you know, these two thought of the, themselves as siblings since they were very young. You know, I think when it was like 10 or 11 or something, I can't remember. It said something about when their parents got married. So I feel like the longer you know each other as brother and sister, the squickier it gets that there's that whole other side of it going on. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, you know, I don't, I, I personally just, I guess all of these characters are flawed and have things in their past that, that they're, they either regret or that have caused them pain. And so I don't, you know, indict them any more than anybody else for anything else in, in the past. But uh, I can understand how the scene and the idea makes people uncomfortable. But I, th- I think it does its job of explain of finally explaining to the audience just why Boone is so hung up on Shannon, why there's so much emotional baggage going on there in their relationship on the island, which is, of course, is the point of all of these early flashbacks. So, you know, yeah, is it an uncomfortable scene? Sure. Does it give us the information we need about Boone to help understand that character? I think it does. I, but I kind of feel like it's a little bit lazy. You think so? Yeah, I feel like there could have been more to it. Like he could have, you know, he could have just admired Shan- Shannon as a sister who just happened to fall for the wrong guys. Yeah. Who felt like she got a raw deal from her mother who hasn't had, who clearly she doesn't have the best relationship with, mm-hmm. but she's, she strived in, in lieu of her and kind of, you know, feeling sympathetic for her and trying to be the best brother he could be. It didn't have to go into this weird, lustful love angle. Right. Right. What I, I mean, and one thing that I, that, that she says is that I think sticks out to me too, is when she says, you know, just go back to the way things were. And he says like, it's all up to you or something to that effect. But I also know for just from living life that nothing ever goes back to the way it was before. Of course. Whenever there's, whenever there's a situation in life where somebody says, can we just make it go back to the way it was before? The answer is no. If you have to ask that, the answer is usually no. That's just my experience. <laughs> so there's just you can't come back from that, you know? Yeah, no, you're totally you can't. right. And so, you know, and, and I, there's a there's one shot that I really like uh, after the implied love scene where it shows Boone completely out of focus, like just a, some very soft light on the side of his face. And she's in the background. And I almost thought that the, 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 the shot itself, the way that the focus was used and the framing of the shot said so much about his relationship with her and how he feels like he's completely... I guess I felt like he feels out of focus or he's, he's completely uh, overwhelmed by her presence. I loved that shot. And I felt that it segued really well until the end of, to the end of the episode, uh, which you already recovered recovered. Cause you did the Island stuff first. I did, but we'll, we'll jump back. Cause I was asking why does he care about Shannon so much? And it's yeah. supposed to be here that he's in love with her. Right. So after all this Locke asks Boone, how did you feel? when you mm-hmm. thought Shannon had died mm-hmm. and Boone says he felt relieved mm-hmm. and that, and that reaction kind of surprises Boone, but Locke tells him it's time for him to let go of yeah. whatever it is he feels about Shannon. Yeah. It surprised Boone surprised himself, but Locke seemed unsurprised. Yes. I, he know. seemed to know this was, this was important mm-hmm. to do to Boone to let him let go and have yeah. them focus on the things that matter. After this Locke tells him, all right, let's go. And they walk away into the forest and that's the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. But there is the B story 
And kind yeah. of a sea story we need to talk about just a little bit here. <laughs> One of them is very comedic. It's basically the relationship between Hurley and Jin and mending that. Because Hurley talks to Jack about how he's been having stomach problems. And Jack asks about his diet and says, well, it doesn't sound like you have enough protein in it. Why don't you get some fish from Jin? And we, I think, I forget if it was the pilot or like the third or fourth episode where Jin offers Hurley the fish and Hurley thinks it looks gross and kind of laughs at him and tells him no thanks. <laughs> but because of this, Hurley is all paranoid that every other fish Jin has offered him going forward is poisonous because he feels like he may have dishonored him or whatever else. So <laughs> he doesn't want to eat any fish with him. So Hurley goes to talk to Jin to ask him for help in learning how to fish. Of course, Jin can't understand his English. He kind of smiles at him and says something in Korean. And Hurley retorts, "You said something mean, didn't you?" As Jin walks away. Well, Good. actually, and 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 uh, I'll let me just interrupt you right there because uh, for funsies, if you ever want to know what uh, they're saying in Korean, if they don't if they don't actually translate it, they have those translations on Lostpedia. Oh, that's fun. I'll have to so check those out. In, in that particular instance, he said, I have no time for amateurs. Just stay out of my way. <laughs> With a big smile on his face, which uh -huh. makes it all the better. <laughs> so Hurley decides then he's going to hang around Jin as Jin is fishing with this big old spear to try to maybe uh, scoop up, ladle up some of those fish that are coming <laughs> to Jin in this moment. And as he's doing this, he steps on an ur urchin. And Jim help, helps him to the beach and Hurley keeps yelling at Jin very comically that he has to pee on his foot to prevent it from being poisoned. And Jin just refuses like big <laughs> arms to the side. No, no, I'm not going to do it. And I, I have to say, I feel like that is one of the funniest scenes in the entire series. Yeah, it's great. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome. So on it. And, and right after Hurley tests Jin's English by telling him, your wife's hot and <laughs> doesn't respond. Uh, but Jin, Jin's busy making this concoction for Hurley to, to drink. Hurley's reluctant, but he does so and then almost instantly vomits it all out. So I guess that's supposed to kind of get the poison out of his system. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I guess. So then we see back at the caves. Jin presents Hurley with a already gutted and cleaned fish. So they're pals. They get along now. Hurley's fears seem to be assuaged, and that's all nice and well. That's the kind of story that I think that they were that they were selling the show to the network on. Like that that would be that would be an episode, you know, something like when they when they were trying to convince them that they weren't going to have too much emphasis on island mystery, and uh, the the whole uh, Hurley having gastrointestinal issues was one of the very earliest. Uh, uh, pitch ideas they had for uh, when they were presenting them with a list of like theoretically what could some episodes be about. So that was the one that made it to the, but it, but it made it as a, as a B story or a C story, like you said. And a, and a really great one too. A really good one. A good one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so the other story here, and this was a little weird to me. Well, the story isn't so weird. It's, it's that with son's help, her and Kate are putting together a garden where they can plant some fruit seeds they found in the forest. But what's weird to me is Jack's interaction with Kate here in the woods as she's collecting passion fruit seeds. And this is the scene where Kate's talking about the boar kind of theorizing that lock, maybe Kate keeping it to itself. It seems to me they're a bit too friendly after Jack was such a dick to her in the episode. Right. Yeah. Before this. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that because I didn't watch those two shows, those two episodes back to back. I think it's a really good point. Yeah, I was just thinking, 
like if I'm Kate, I I want nothing to do with Jack for a little mm-hmm. bit. I guess we don't know how much time has elapsed between that episode and this one in the yeah. in the Lost Universe. But well, still. it's supposed to be roughly a day. Okay, yeah, then that's not enough. <laughs> if if I'm Kate, anyways. Yeah. The, so the the first couple seasons, they tried to stick with the formula of one episode is one day, roughly. It's it's not exact, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. And the big the big thing that that happens here is as Kate and Son are tending at the garden. Kate makes some remark in English. She kind of is talking out loud, but sort of to Son, and Son makes a smile that indicates yeah. she understood what Kate was saying. Yeah. And Kate asks Son if she could speak English, and Son tells Kate not to tell anyone. And Kate is rightfully <laughs> very surprised by this. <laughs> so that's now two people on the right. Who can yep. speak English, and she promises not to tell Jin, even if she can't understand why Jin doesn't know. And son tells her it's because I love him. And then she asks Kate, have you ever lied to a man you've loved? Which uh, safe to say she has. <laughs> and there, there's actually near the end of the episode, Kate sees them walking by in the caves. She's cleaning her clothes in the waterfall and son kind of gives her this knowing look, but again, nothing said. And Jack gives her some guava sheets he found, which is, Cute, I guess, but still a little a little irksome given the way that he treated her in the last episode. I think, this has mended so quickly. I think that might be a symptom of sometimes I guess there is a little bit of a disconnect between when you do have like a writing team that writes that, that comes up with the idea for the, the 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 general thrust of a season and the plots and stuff, but then they break out and assign certain episodes to a couple of writers each. That that there can be a disconnect there uh, because they probably knew that there was going to be this conflict between Jack and Kate over the the briefcase, but I don't know. I mean, I just think that, and and you and I said in the last episode, we felt that the way Jack treated her in in the last episode, the the um, whatever the case may be, was so out of character. Like even Jack can be like a hot headed asshole sometimes, but to that extent was just so extreme that the next writing team coming in probably couldn't even predicted that, 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 that was the extreme to which they took uh, the way he treated her. I don't know. I feel like there's a little disconnect there that might explain that. I can't remember if there would have been a scene between Shannon and Boone that wouldn't have made this impossible, mm-hmm. but in a way I almost feel like this episode should have been in the space in the air date space that whatever the case may be was, and this should have been aired the week that this episode aired. Probably would have been okay that you could have switched those because like we were saying last time there was Boone almost had no time, you know, no screen time in the yeah. previous episode. I don't yeah, know. It, why, why do you think that would have helped? Just because again, when we talked about how, whatever the case may be, was the first episode that came back from the mid season break. Oh they yeah. Didn't address the hatch at all. Yeah. And just seeing now how the way Jack and Kate are acting in this episode Got versus it. that one there's there's no logic to it i see what you're saying i see what you're saying yeah, yeah that makes sense and i don't think jack and kate are all that present and special so you could have given them some time off that would have made it seem realistic the next episode that they would have been back on better terms yeah uh, obviously hindsight is 2020 but we are watching these in order and, and these kind of things come to my head mm-hmm, sure and sure. and really the only other thing to discuss here is that Michael has found his original bag and he's in the cave sitting and he opens a box from his bag, which we explore a little bit more in our next episode. Yes, we do. And that's a good segue, but I will say talking a little bit about this episode that I agree with what the critics had to say about it, that the reviews are pretty much mixed with some feeling that Boone and Shannon really weren't that strong enough characters to base an episode around, but Mm -hmm. that Locke's character development saved it from being a clunker. And Mm -hmm. that I agree with. 
I think that and the Hurley and uh, Jin stuff was really excellent. But the I didn't like. I really did not care for the flashback stuff. Uh, the hallucination stuff was okay. Like the point that it got around to was was good enough. But yeah, just not the the lock stuff was excellent. The the Hurley and Jin stuff was really funny, but the the meat of the story just wasn't my favorite. Mm, okay, and I'll and I'll 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 partly agree with you. Um, I I I tend to I actually happen to like both the characters of, of Boone and Shannon a, a lot. Um, which if you're watching the show and listening to this for the first time uh, might be hard to believe, but, um, but I, uh, uh, I mean, they weren't popular characters for a lot of people, but uh, you've heard me talk, you know, about Shannon's transformation, but the same with Boone. I think that uh, the, you know, catharsis at the end of the episode is really uh, effective when he said he felt relieved. I think that's something that a lot of people don't like admitting like when he said, you know, when that person, when she, when Shannon was dead, how did you feel? And you say, felt relieved. That sounds like a terrible thing to say, you know. So we don't like to think about that. But there are things in life where people are, you know, uh, burdens that we have. And when uh, those burdens are taken away, you can't help but feel a form of relief, even if you feel bad that you feel that way. So I think the framework was really good to get to that point. At least the on I'll say the the island story framework was good to get to that point for Boone because there's clearly a transformation uh, for Boone that happens this episode, and then you can see immediately in the next episode we're going to go into. But I will agree that there probably could have been a dozen other ways that they could have had these two have a background, uh, you know, like a, a backstory that would explain their relationship on the island that would probably have been better. And I think it's it is relatable in the way that, you know, how many times do people go through a breakup and they feel relieved because now they're free of that or they have yeah. a, a loved one who's who's ill or what have you. And almost when when their time comes, you feel a little bit of relief because they're not in pain anymore sure. or just them living is almost worse off. Right. So I think people can can relate to that. And I will say the flashback was not a total wash because we did have the first character interaction. In the, yes. in the flashbacks with Sawyer at the at the um the police station. That's right. Very so that's true. Fun. Yeah. Wonder if that was a Carlton Cuse idea since he helped write this episode. I'd assume so. It gives the flashbacks yeah. a little extra spice. He may have seen, you know, the list of characters that we haven't gotten uh, touched upon in flashbacks is pretty much down to down to Hurley. And he's thinking, well, if we're gonna be doing more flashbacks, we need to give this a little extra flavor so people still kind of care. I also think that was Sawyer's only appearance in the episode. I don't think he was on the Island story at all. Was he? That is correct. As far as I can remember. Cause I remember watching this one and then watching the episode I recapped and, and, and then Sawyer shows up in one scene. I'm like, Oh yeah, there's a Southern rednecky con man on the show. I forgot about. And I was like, Oh yeah. Cause yeah, he doesn't even. And I, and I think unlike, I don't, I don't know if there's, he's not contractually obligated to appear in every episode, but he definitely is, it has like a different contract than like, say, you know, Emily DeRaven, who plays Claire, who's gone for whole chunks of the season, you know? Right. Well, she got kidnapped, Ben. She got kidnapped. Um, do you want to do our superlatives? You get to pick the superlatives. Well, there's one, there's one last note I one made about thing. the episode that I okay. wanted to, I want to check with you for accuracy. Okay. I read that Ian Summerhalder, who plays mm-hmm. Boone, was the first actor cast on the series. Is that correct? I don't, I can't answer that. I don't actually don't know the answer to that. I, I, I think that's more of a, it might be a more complicated question than it might seem like at face value, because I know that 
you know, reading and, and watching all the behind the scenes stuff, when they went into the show, they had uh, characters in mind. They had actors that they knew they wanted to create characters for, like uh, like Jorge Garcia, you know, who read for the role of Sawyer, but then they were like, mm, no, we want this guy in the show no matter what. So, you know, like they, so it's kind of hard to say, like, but I guess if, if the question is, was he the first one who signed on the dotted line? I actually don't know the answer to that. It'd be, okay. good to, it'd be interesting to find out. I'm sorry if I failed you as Lost Guru. You did. <laughs> I'll just have to live it down. <laughs> That's right. But for now, we could talk about our superlatives in the episode. Do you have a quote of the episode? <laughs> I, do, I do. And of course, it, and I and I didn't pick anything from Jin and Hurley because I thought everything was so excellent in there. So uh-huh. There's a point when Hurley's talking to Jack about his diet and how it's causing some some indigestion, some stomach issues. Yeah. And Hurley's picking up a bunch of leaves. And Jack looks at him and says, you're not going to eat those, are you? <laughs> and Hurley just says, dude, these aren't for eating. Excuse me. <laughs> That's a good, good one. Joke. Gotta love poop jokes. All right, how about your uh, moment of the episode? I got to say, the scene with Locke and, and Boone was was very compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just the way that they're in the dark, there's a campfire, and you just see both their faces in the fire mm-hmm. as Boone has realized he can let go of Shannon now, and, and Boone kind of now, it's it's almost like a weird culty thing because it almost feels like Locke has fully converted Boone into his mm-hmm. follower. And even you see in the next episode, they're in the woods and it's it's the two of them. So even they're even more interconnected right. because Boone sees something in lockdown. It's almost like a, a David Koresh sort of oddness. Well, and, to, to just him. like I said, remember I said at the beginning uh, when he's saying stuff like we're going to need Saeed on our side, you know, and then he was yeah. even saying stuff like when, when Boone was asking about trying to or wanting to tell other people about the hatch, he's like, we can't tell them yet. They won't understand it. It does start to sound very cult like or militaristic yeah. or something. <laughs> It was really like a kind of a goosebumps mm-hmm. moment, and this and it actually made me think of something that I read about this episode. In that the writers like to depict a character in a certain way so that one's opinion would be made up, then they would reveal something else that would change their mind. Right. So I think a lot of people learn to love Locke, and then after this episode, may have some feelings about Locke that they didn't love so much. Right. Yeah. So in that way, I thought it was really effective. Last but not least, we have to have the asshole idiot of the episode. But I should remind you that it is not limited to one if you feel the need to have more than one. This is going to be a very controversial answer. Okay. So I think Boone is disqualified because he was hallucinating. Okay. Locke, I think, was in the right with everything he did and said. Okay. Hurley had every right to be paranoid when it comes to to Jin, I feel. (laughs) Uh, If I'm not counting the flashbacks, to me, the answer is nobody. Because nobody else did anything egregious enough to earn the award. Oh, are we not allowed to count the flashbacks? So you're allowed to. You as in Ben Lundy are allowed to. And if I were, Boone would probably be. So you're you're making this. You're just making the choice not to. You're trying to choose an island person each time. I'm I'm making the choice for this episode specifically not to. But if you're going to include the flashbacks, you can take a pick in between Boone and Shannon. Yeah. Okay. So what or, about you? Or Brian, isn't that the guy that does the... I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, he's a scumbag, but I almost feel like, you know, it is... He almost got swindled too, like, I guess. Totally. Like, he, he swindled the swindler, so how can I? How right. bad can I feel for about right. him? So what about you? What was your quote of the episode? Uh, my quote was, I just went straight for it. I know you said that you, you wanted to find something else, but I'm just going to read it straight uh, word for word. You need to pee, pee on it. Pee on my foot. I'll lose my foot if you don't. Just pee, pee on it. I think um, 
what's the actor's name that plays Hurley? Jorge Garcia. I think he did a better delivery than you did. I, I think he did. Well, I, I thought giving the wooden delivery makes it kind of funny too. But uh, it almost rivals. I think this episode probably ri- rivals the most references to urine in such a short period of time as that episode of The Office where they're all taking the uh, the pee tests and Michael doesn't want to pee in a cup. Right, and he tries to get some of Dwight's pee. Right. So, except there they were saying urine. I, I think I even remember seeing a behind the scenes thing where the writers were saying they wanted to see how many times they could use the word urine in a single script. For comparing this to that, I think they fit the word pee in here uh, quite a bit in a in a little stretch. I'd like to find the website that tracks those things. Like I think there's that <laughs> website that tracks how many times the word fuck is said in movies. Yeah. Maybe there's that for pee in television shows. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, so no, no, that was a good quote. Um, my moment of the episode was the exact same as yours, the ending scene where uh, I just wrote Boone lets go of Shannon. And then for asshole idiot, I put everybody in the flashback. Yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> I, 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 you could almost say anybody who is at the clubhouse at the beginning of the episode because you know they're all just the worst people. Oh, sure, the, the worst. <laughs> um, and I don't have anything really to say about the music from this episode. Um, it's Once again, we've got a, a uh, episode where there was not really any incidental music, and uh, nothing in particular jumped out at the uh, at me about the score other than that there was some good chase music in the monster dream sequence um, that, is, that actually does make it to the, uh, the season one official soundtrack. Um, but, uh, uh, but nothing uh, particularly jumped out at me with this one. So I guess that can take us into special and, and I'll tell yeah. you something funny about this one. Okay. When I was watching this, I watched it on Hulu cause I didn't have um, my Blu-ray player hooked up exactly. And it said lost special on Hulu. And I thought, Oh, maybe they included <laughs> some special that aired on ABC in between <laughs> hearts and minds and whatever the next episode was. Cause I couldn't remember the name of it. Right. And I realized, Nope, I skipped ahead by accident. So I had to go back and start, <laughs> which is okay. On that subject, um, uh, we're still planning, I think, to talk about when there are when there is some extra material that came out during Lost's run uh, to talk about it when it becomes relevant to the show because there's definitely a lot of searching you can do on YouTube and 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 so forth to find uh, material that if you were, if you're just strictly jumping on Hulu and you know binging your way through the episodes, you would never see and never know about. And we'll try to give people, I think, as much advance notice as we can and provide links to that kind of stuff. Absolutely. In the show notes are on, are on social media and whatnot. So, Absolutely. So you can watch that stuff ahead yep. of time. Okay, so let's dig into special. I'm going to do the flashback first and then the A story and then the B story. I have reasoning for doing it in that order. but So this is our first uh, Michael flashback. You could kind of consider it a Michael slash Walt flashback, but I think the the majority of the uh, flashback is told from Michael's perspective. It starts with Michael and his girlfriend, Susan, uh, looking for baby supplies, but it is clear that they don't have as much money as they'd like. She's trying to pass the bar exams to become a lawyer, and he's working construction, although he's also an aspiring artist. Susan agrees to Michael's suggestion of the name Walt, but reminds him that the boy's last name will be Lloyd since they are not married. And this is one of those flashbacks too, Kevin, that moves really quickly through many, many years. <laughs> so a lot of my paragraphs start with years later or sometime later. I couldn't believe how much younger Michael looked without facial hair. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was a different actor at first. Yeah. I like, and I don't think that. I've ever seen Harold Perrineau in anything else where he didn't have facial hair. And, and it also was, you know, we, we see – 
they they've made Michael into sexy lumberjack Michael. <laughs> yeah. With no with no sleeves, but here he's wearing like a hat and a hoodie and an earring and yeah. he's clean shaven. So he, so he just looks like a completely different person. Yeah. It really caught me off guard when I when I watched it. Isn't it funny how like the 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 castaways even though they obviously change clothes and they wear different sets of clothing, they still have like something that is that like a general type of of outfit that they wear that almost becomes like their uniform. So you're right, like Michael tends to always have the whole he's got the like you said the uh the rolled up sleeves thing going on or the the thing it almost looks like the like uh like the things the business suits they wore on the in the Flintstones live action movie uh or <laughs> yeah. and then Locke has always got just like a single color t-shirt even it's like a yellowish or a greenish you know or something he's in that color zone and uh like Saeed's always got like the the very tight hugging tank tops that everybody still has kind of a uniform you know what i mean yeah, and, and and that is Michael's uniform. <laughs> and a lot of these, the a lot of these characters are are keeping pretty cut in tone for people who are malnourished and haven't been, don't have the right <laughs> exercise equipment. Like, I'd like to see you know somebody just like deadlifting a piece of the fuselage or something to explain why these people are are keeping their muscles. You know, that I'm willing to 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 forgive as Hollywood magic. It, it's so, it's yes. just fun. You're right. Um, okay, so two years later, Michael is playing with baby Walt, and Susan tells him that she's leaving for a job at a law office in Amsterdam. They argue over who gets to take custody of Walt, and Susan makes it clear that she will challenge Michael legally if necessary, since there's no way a court would side with him. Sometime later, Michael's on a street payphone with Susan, trying to talk to Walt. Susan tells him that she has started seeing her boss, Brian, who Walt had, uh, in, we know in a previous uh, episode of the show, Walt had referred to as like his other dad. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we've heard of this character already. Michael declares that he is coming to Amsterdam to get his son, but as soon as he walks away from the payphone, a car hits him. Um, <laughs> so there's there, there's two things I want to say here. Okay, okay. Uh, well, one thing I think it's, it's important to mention that she makes it clear that no court would side with him because A, she's the mother, but B, he no, Michael's either unemployed or just doesn't have steady work at this time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, and someone pointed this out, basically that in New York City, it's it's nighttime. So it's got to be at least 6 p.m., if not later. And wherever the wife is, it would be like midnight. So for Michael to call and ask for a, a child of Walt's age to get on the phone. Yeah. Seems a little bit unreasonable. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. That's actually because I, I thought you were going to say something else because I was going to ask you this, which is you have to wonder how this situation came up where suddenly he's on a payphone in the middle of the street wanting to talk to his son. Like that yeah. seems like kind of a weird, but I, I kind of had to just invent in my head some story. I, I sort of thought maybe Michael was, you know, at a bar and he was getting a little tipsy and depressed and he, you know, thinking about the fact that he doesn't, you know, his son's not there. He can't see him anymore. And then decides to try and make the phone call. Cause I feel like that could also, if that's true, like that's maybe my head cannon here, but like uh, that would also explain why maybe he would call Susan. And if he's, you know, not really thinking about it, not thinking about the fact that it's a totally different time of the day where he's calling her. That was just the story I made up in my head to explain why he'd be talking, why he'd be trying to talk to his two-year-old son on a payphone in the middle of the street in the middle of the night. We're, so where the liquid courage gives him the courage. But not <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we figured it out, folks. I get a no prize for that one. All right. <laughs> uh, later, Michael's recovering in the hospital, drawing a picture on a card for Walt. 
Susan shows up and tells Michael that she is covering all of his medical expenses, but that she and Brian are getting married and moving to Italy and that Brian wants to adopt Walt. Some years later, Susan, Brian, and Walt are now living in Australia. So they've been doing a lot of globetrotting. Susan appears to be falling ill. Walt gets upset that Susan and Brian aren't paying attention to him when he's trying to show them a bird in a school book. At that moment, the same bird flies into the window, hitting the glass and dying on impact. Brian looks down at Walt suspiciously. So I can stop there if you want to say something about that, because that's probably a pretty interesting scene. Yeah, because obviously that's real weird that he's pointing at the bird and the bird materializes out of nowhere. So that happened. (laughs) Yeah. Seems like Walt's just a totally normal kid like everyone else. (laughs) I mean, I know things from my textbooks all the time used to just fly into the windows when I was trying to study, but, and I guess I didn't even make this connection while watching the episode, but I guess, are we supposed to think there's some connection between whatever Walt's powers are and the illness of his mother? I did not make that connection. I'd be more inclined to think there might be something like that if there was some reason why he would sort of like subconsciously want his mother to get sick, but that just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know. What do you, what, tell me what you're thinking there because I hadn't I hadn't even occurred to me either. No, I, I, I'm not really thinking anything either. I'm just thinking like maybe – well, I guess what would be too old for it to have any effect, but maybe – I don't know. Maybe his frustration well, caused her to not feel so good or I, well, I let can't. Me tell you, uh, here, I'll give you this, Kevin. I'll give you this. I mean, it's a good, it's a good question that you posed. Maybe if nothing else, maybe Brian would suspect that because we're going about to get to the scene, another scene with Brian. Yeah. I, I would, I would be perfectly willing to entertain the idea that Brian thinks that, that, that uh, Walt brought on uh, Susan's illness. And and let's just call out the writer's room right here. Two flashbacks in a row, and the and the guy is called Brian in both of them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there aren't a million male names you could have thought of. Yeah, I, I didn't even I didn't even occur to me until I we were you were talking about the last episode, but you're right. Although in the scripts, I will say, looking at Lostpedia doing research for these two, one is spelled with a Y and the other is spelled with an I. So Oh, don't give me that. <laughs> so totally creative. You know what? I bet somebody in the writer's room pointed out like, hey, we've had two Brian's in, in two episodes in a row. And one of them just deleted the wine, changed to I. And everyone's like, OK, I feel good now. That's better. Not long after that, Brian appears at Michael's apartment in New York and tells him that Susan has died. He first tries to tell Michael that Susan wanted him to have custody of Walt. But Michael deduces that it's really Brian who doesn't want to take care of Walt anymore. Brian tries to give Michael plane tickets and money to get Walt, and Michael berates him for abandoning Walt since he's the only father that Walt has ever known. Brian tells Michael that Walt is somehow different and that sometimes when he's around, things happen. Quote, unquote, things happen. Uh, So, yeah, that's what I'm thinking here is that especially because, like, this whole things happen thing and he doesn't want to be near Walt anymore. And I know part of it is because the guy's just kind of like a – a jerk who took on the responsibility of having a kid selfishly. I'm just going to say that if I sound judgy, I'm sorry, but he, he openly admits that he didn't have any interest in raising kids, but he adopted Walt because Susan wanted him to. And he wanted Susan. Yeah. To me, that's jerky. (laughs) And, And the one nice thing about this scene too, is that when Susan originally tells Michael in the hospital that she wants Brian to adopt Walt and raise him as, 
as Brian, as the father, she tells, she tells Michael, you know, make sure you're thinking about this as not what's best for you, but what's best for Walt. Walt. And clearly in this scene, we've seen Michael has come around to that. Right. Because he is thinking you sticking around as the only father figure in his life is absolutely what's best for him. Right. And so I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even to the, the smaller point too, when, when uh, he's like, where's Walt? And he's like, oh, he's with his nanny. He's like, you left him with his nanny like a few days after his mother died? Like, yeah. what the fuck is the matter with you? So anyway, moving ahead in time again, Michael arrives in Australia to pick up Walt. The nanny gives him a box that contains all of the letters that he has sent. he had sent to his son years ago unopened. Michael introduces himself to Walt as his father. He starts to tell the truth about Brian, but instead decides to tell Walt that he is taking him over Brian's objections. He also tells Walt that they can take Vincent, even though Vincent is Brian's. Really interesting. I mean, really, this definitely got me in Michael's camp because this episode, I mean, I like Michael in general, but it's pretty self-sacrificial to, you know, try and I guess save your son's feelings by not saying like, Oh, hey, that guy you called dad for so many years, he didn't actually care about you that much. He just, he tried to give you up to me, you know, and instead sort of, he like, he, so he literally made himself into the bad guy for, for the sake of Walt. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes, it absolutely does. It doesn't, he's not demonizing Brian. He wants to, right. to salvage the image of Brian as yeah. his father figure. Even though as he, he has every right to demonize him, but he right. doesn't. And yeah. I'm with you. It, it does put you on Michael's side, although it is nice to juxtapose this with the way he's acting on the island, which is less than <laughs> right. admirable. Right. Is, did <laughs> did they say a little confrontational? Yes. Did I miss it or did they explain why Walt and his mom and them were in Australia? Because last we learned they were moving to Italy. To Italy. Yeah. Yeah. That's I don't I don't think I've, I, I unless I missed it. I, I think they didn't say anything about it. I guess you're just thinking they went from Amsterdam to Italy and then to have the jump to Australia is, I guess, not too much of a stretch because they – I think when she she said – when she told Michael that they were moving to Italy, she said that Brian was, like, taking over a branch of the of the firm that was there. So I, I think you, you can just kind of reasonably assume that that this all this globetrotting is they're still with the same company. It's just this, like, insanely huge, powerful, you know, multinational – uh, company that they're working for or, or legal firm they're working for. Sure. And I think Michael had already told us in a previous episode, just talking to one of the Island people, that is why he was on the flight was to go. Yeah. To so we, so this was no right. big, this was no big reveal. We already knew that. Right. Yeah. And, and I, even there's even a little mention there um, in that scene, the scene where Walt has the book on the floor where they end up having the bird hit the ceiling or the, 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 the glass, one of the first lines in there is Susan is talking to Brian and she says something about, Oh, those guys, you know, like she's talking about a case she was just in and she says, Oh, they think just cause I'm new to Australian law that I'm some kind of novice or something like that. So that's sort of it, that, that line is in there so that we understand that they haven't been in Australia very long at that scene. I so. can appreciate that. They at least acknowledge they're in Australia. Don't right. beat you over the head with like, well, I got a new job and da, 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 da. <laughs> context clues people. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we're done with our flashback section. Anything else to say about that? No, I'm still just stumped that that Michael looks so different shaved. Is the yeah. is the woman who played Susan somebody of note because she she looks so familiar? She her name is um, uh, Tamara Taylor, and she is the most. I looked her up. Uh, her most famous role is she was one of the lead. She was one of the uh, 
main cast members on Bones. Hey, you know what? My gym played Bones every single day I was there. That's exactly where I know <laughs> okay. it from. Yeah, so like for I think she joined the cast in season two, uh, and and then she was a main a main cast member for the rest of the show. And and Bones was twelve seasons, so that was a pretty big role for her. I've seen her here and there, and other she's got you know she's got one of those IMDb lists that has like you know a, a couple dozen guest spots in this or that thing. But that that was her her longest lasting uh, role. That was kind of like her breakout role. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, so going on to the present on the island, Michael is in the jungle performing his favorite activity. Kevin, what is Michael's favorite activity? Any guesses? Is it asking people, where's my boy or where's my son or yelling for Walt? That's very close. Yeah, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head. Any sort of variation of calling for Walt, asking about Walt, that's Michael's favorite activity. So he's doing that. He asked Charlie and Jack if they've seen him. They haven't. Everybody's sort of doing their own thing. Uh, Charlie's looking for uh, Claire's luggage. Jack is hauling wood around. Hurley's trying to get them all to go to play golf. Uh, but Michael walks off and Hurley comments that Michael hates being a dad. Uh, elsewhere, Vincent and Boone look on while Locke teaches Walt how to throw a knife. And yes, this is what we were just talking about. We've got this little army forming now in the thick of the jungle here. Uh, Locke tells Walt to see the path of the knife in his mind's eye. And Walt is suddenly able to make the knife land in the tree and stick. Is that great teaching from Locke or is that this... Whatever it is about Walt that makes him so unique. Oh, I think it's the latter. Definitely. I think it's the latter, yeah. Because um, like, I think Walt makes a really big deal. Like, I really visualized it. I really saw it. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's like, I really did see it, yeah. And then uh, later, of course, we'll have a little more here. Uh, Michael shows up, sends Walt back to the camp, then accuses Locke of intentionally driving a wedge between the two of them. After a brief scuffle, Locke surprises Michael by saying that his son is different. Basically, when he says that, it sort of sets off, you know, uh, he has kind of a reaction to that, which we know later is from the flashback when Brian said it, uh, and that he should be allowed to realize his potential. Michael tells him to stay away from both of them, tells Locke to stay away from both of them. Later, Michael's speaking to son and says that he can't allow his son to grow up on the island. Saeed and Shannon are telling Jack that what they've learned about Rousseau's maps. Saeed believes that they're pointing to a location on the island, possibly the source of the distress call. Overhearing all this, Michael gets frustrated that the group is becoming entrenched on the island and proposes building a raft, which is met with skepticism. So this is the, the genesis of the raft here. And I guess Saeed is still plugging away at those maps. Or you said something about him... Um, Walt being special or, or his ability. And I think it, it sounds like Locke clearly recognizes that, you know, when he says allowed to realize his potential, Michael probably doesn't understand what Locke's talking about there, but I feel like Locke probably has more of an inkling of that than, than he's letting on. He wants Walt to unlock his potential. Whoa. You know, I'm, I'll step out. I'm just gonna... <laughs> you can see yourself to the door. Oh, yeah, we definitely got to talk about this next part. Walt is reading the comic book that he found in the plane wreckage, which includes a gallery or sorry, sorry, includes imagery of aliens, a huge weather dome in the Arctic and a polar bear. Michael makes an attempt to connect with Walt by talking about the comic art. But when Walt doesn't respond, Michael grabs the comic out of his hands and tells Walt that he needs help with something. I'm going to stop there because we got to talk about this comic book a little bit. We've seen it once before already, right? They were look, He was looking at it before. Mm-hmm. And what did we see in there? A polar bear. 
a polar bear. A couple other things that I think are worth mentioning about this, because this was one of those things where um, in, in the time when the show was on, and I, again, even when I became a fan in the second season, people were still talking about this comic book. So like a season and a half later, the polar bear, of course, but then there are other things like imagery that uh, are as, as he flips through the pages. It's a Green Lantern Flash team-up comic book. And I'm, being the DC fanboy I am, of course, I'm familiar with that team-up comic book, the Kyle Rayner, Wally West era, but, uh, and has been translated into Spanish. But the, uh, everything, like there was a picture of a, uh, an alien kind of strapped to like an experimental table in a science lab or something. Uh, and then that the Arctic Dome thing, people were taking every page of this thing and dissecting it for clues about Lost. That is not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so this was uh, this helped fuel the flames of, oh, they're all part of some experiment. They're going to be in some, you know, uh, uh, you know, contained biodome environment where some experiments been taking place. Look at the comic; it shows like a, you know, a, a globe, you know, a dome of a. You know, it just all this stuff, the, you know, the alien, oh, we're going to find at the end of the series, we're going to find that they were all strapped to tables and that this was all taking place in their minds. People speculated endlessly based on a few images from the comic. Now, it helps that one of the images from the comic is certainly related, which is, of course, the polar bear. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, that was just a fun thing because uh, a year uh, over a year later, when I started really hitting the uh, lost message boards, people were still talking about that damn that damn comic. <laughs> is this a real comic? Now that's a good question. I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I would have to go. I, there's a database I look at for looking for comics sometimes, and I actually didn't go through the trouble to do that. But I don't know. No, I, I should. I, I want to find out now that you asked that question. I thought um, you would know. I came here with this I, question I, thinking you'd be like, this is from the series in this I'm, year. <laughs> I'm letting you down so much today. <laughs> or you'd at least be able to tell me, nope, it's not real. They got some permission from Jim DiDio or some other artist to mm-hmm. draw this stuff and make it made up comic for the show or something. Mm-hmm. Let me down, man. I I don't, you know, it's interesting because I now really want to find out because I feel like if they had made it for the show, that a lot more of that speculation would be justified. I think they probably went out and found a comic that had a polar bear in it, but that's just my guess. I don't know. Or, or maybe the rest of the comics real and they inserted one shot of like a polar bear, you know, because of the plot or something. I'm going to find that out now. Like that's something where I'm actually, I will report back. If you, if you can help me remember next episode to, to answer that question, I I really want to know. So Michael and Walt, they begin scavenging for plane wreckage that could be used for a raft when Walt sees Locke and Boone and follows them into the jungle. Shannon confronts Boone about what he and Locke are doing, uh, then asks for his help building the raft with Michael, but Boone turns her down. Now, I thought that was a good scene because it sort of called right back to what happened in Hearts and Minds. So maybe you'd like to say a little bit about that. Which you know, I, I apologize. Like I actually got sidetracked because I looked up the comic. Did you? Okay. The scene where uh, Boone and Wall, uh, Boone and Locke are headed out into the jungle again, and Shannon stops Boone and asks for his help mm-hmm. uh, making the raft, and he's just like, "No thanks," and then they keep going. Yeah. I mean, kind of shows the effects of the previous episode. I think. Oh yes, absolutely. He he's realized that he doesn't give a hoot what happens to Shannon, yeah. so he can he can indeed. Be, be rid of her and you kind of wonder from Locke is this Locke doing a kind thing for Boone or is it to assemble his army 
It's probably some of both. I think Locke think I think Locke thinks genuinely believes that the things he is doing are for everybody's greater good, but he also sees Boone as somebody as like a tool that he can use to some extent. Yes. To achieve those goals. Well, before we move on, should I talk about this comic a little bit? Go for it. It is apparently real. Okay. It is Green Lantern slash Flash Faster Friends Part One, and it was published in 1997. Okay. And so it says about the polar bear. The first image of the comic was a rearing polar bear found on page 36 of the comic book. The polar bear in the comic book was attacking modern age Green Lantern while he was tracking golden age Green Lantern in the Arctic. I mean, it makes sense because the scene later where it has like the, the, the like the big glass dome or whatever, that's also in the Arctic. So I guess the, the comic story takes place uh, in, in that environment. And they've got the, the polar bear as part of it. It makes sense. Yes, and I'm looking. Sorry, now I'm looking at the the D, the DC wiki to get you an author on that. <laughs> I have to wonder how they stumbled upon that. You know, oh, we need a comic with a polar bear in it, and somebody's like, "Oh, I know." So then again, wasn't uh, yeah? There were a couple people that that are associated with uh, DC Comics that did some work for Lost, I think. And and crazy enough, it looks to be it is only one issue long. Just is just a one shot special. Maybe maybe two. If, okay. if that, but it's, it was written by Ron Mars. The cover artist okay. was Dave Johnson and there was five different pencilers and a couple linkers, which I won't bug you with, no. but yeah, that's, that's what that's about. So yeah, it is apparently a real comic book. Okay. That's yeah. That's I, I have a feel. I have a feeling if, if they had made that for the show, that there would have been a lot more legitimacy to like this whole dissecting every image thing. But um, yeah. Okay. So they just found one that had a polar bear in there and went with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I do wonder this is just me genuinely wondering if they had to get Warner Brothers or or DC's permission to do so. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, they've got a whole there's always a there's a team that devoted specifically to getting copyright permissions and stuff like that. I'm sure they had to do that. I'm surprised that I mean, one thing I noticed too is that I don't think that you really see well, you, I guess you see one shot of the Flash and Green Lantern as he's flipping through the pages. So I, yeah, they just thought that, I don't know, product placement seemed to work. So yeah. So for that scene with uh, Shannon, I thought, I guess the other, other thing I wanted to point out with that was that uh, you could even see her sort of try and turn on the charm a little bit. Like you could tell you could, you could actually watch her sort of start to speak to him in a way that was, had obviously been successful in the past at like emotionally manipulating him. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like she, she adopts a certain tone of voice and a demeanor with him. That's clearly meant to be emotionally manipulative. And she has seen this work on him a million times. And then this time it does not work. He says, no, thanks. And walks off. So, and a lot of Shannon haters are probably like, ha ha ha. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't like emotional manipulation. I like Shannon, but I don't like, you know, that part of her character. So I'm not going to defend it or anything either. So. I, for one, am a big fan of emotional manipulation. I use it often in my life. (laughs) Use when necessary. All right. So um, let's see. Shannon confronts Boone. We talk about that. Okay. When Walt catches up to Locke, Locke tells him not to talk to him anymore out of respect for his father's wishes. But Michael arrives on the scene and erupts at Locke. Locke tries to make peace, but Michael threatens to kill him if he ever goes near Walt again. Walt and Michael argue, and Walt says that Michael doesn't care about him because he was never around when he was young. Michael says that Walt can hate him if he wants, but he still has to listen to him and throws Walt's comic book into the fire. 
So yeah, that's the a uh, little bit over overreacting Michael Dawson. And, but it is one of those things where you can kind of see both sides of it because yeah. Walt is saying, well, you weren't there as a kid. And although we kind of know from the flashback, the reasons why he doesn't, because Michael right. made the choice right. to spare him from hating his, his father, which is admirable. But of course, Michael can't just come out and say this and he's trying right. to assume his power as a father. And, but you know, throwing yeah. the comic book in the fire is a bit too far. That was, that was pretty, that's pretty intense. Yeah. And uh, maybe chalk that up partly to, being a dad for approximately, you know, a few days before you crash land with your son on a deserted Island. Mm -hmm. Later on, Hurley tells Michael that Walt has left with Vincent. Michael goes to Locke and Boone, but Walt isn't with them. Locke offers to help Michael find him elsewhere. Walt is walking Vincent through the jungle when the dog begins to bark and then breaks free of Walt's grip and runs away. Walt gives chase. When Michael and Locke catch up to Walt, he has been trapped in an enclosure of banyan trees by a computer-generated polar bear. Occasionally, the computer-generated bear turns into an animatronic puppet head. Michael and Locke climb out over the trees, and Michael drops into the enclosure, wrapping vines around Walt so that he can be pulled to safety. The bear renews its assault, and Michael stabs its paw, causing it to retreat. After the experience, Michael and Walt appear to be reconciled, as do Michael and Locke. Back at camp, Michael gives Walt the unopened letters that he had sent him throughout his childhood, which, as you pointed out, uh, he had recovered his own luggage uh, in the previous episode. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I just I think the bear effects on on Lost are so funny. I have to take a stab at him whenever I can. But uh, and, and I pro- think it's it is obviously very funny. But of course, we're supposed yeah. to get the takeaway is that Walt's reading the comic about the polar bear. Polar bear appears. Right. So let's talk about that. So. The theories of the time range from, you know, that Walt psychically conjured this polar bear in order to create a situation where he, his father had to reconcile with him, you know, like to just create that, the whole situation or, uh, um, you know, there were even theories that all of this stuff was already on the Island when they got there because of their destiny to be there, you know, that like, Polar bears were in Walt's head, so they ended up on the island. And that falls right in line with if you, I mean, if you're watching that episode and you don't have any other information, that makes perfect sense. That because you've got this whole scene with the bird and the, and the, you know, the bird getting conjured when uh, Walt's getting upset because his parents won't look at the book. Yeah. So now it's, it's, now you have a correlation where frustration or anger leads to these kind of things. Right. Right. Like a like a proper X Man style mutant when when he's a, a young boy who gets upset his his powers manifest and crazy shit happens. Well, at least he's not like Cyclops then. <laughs> oh, just feel free to make fun of Cyclops anytime you want. Oh, I do. I take every I take every second too. <laughs> isn't there some? Was it is it our our friend Jimmy or someone else we know who says Cyclops is their favorite X Man? Jimmy loves Cyclops. Yes, yeah. that's ridiculous. Oh yeah, I wasn't going to say it out loud because I didn't want to embarrass the poor guy. But yeah, he's not going to listen to this. No, Jimmy likes Cyclops. Oh, that's awful. You know what though? I, I'll, I'll never be one to talk because you know who my favorite character is on that old X Men arcade game. Uh, Jubilee. No, Dazzler. Da- oh, on the on the arcade game. I'm sorry. On the arcade game, Dazzler was was what there was before Jubilee. You know, I, I and I, I have a fully crafted and rational explanation for why I like that character that nobody else likes, but I'm not going to go into it. Yeah, that's fair. So I can't make fun of Jimmy for Cyclops. I can't. And, I'll, and I'll spare our audience a Colossus roar. 
<laughs> Even though I think like once a year that picture of you and Dimitri uh, shows up uh, with you guys with your dorky T-shirts. Yeah, such uh, as the, my, the, my memories, photos or whatever. Yeah, such as the the gift of social media reminding you of embarrassing photos. <laughs> reminding you what a dork you used to be. Yep. I'm still a dork, but just in a different, different right involved. That is the end of the uh, A story for um, the island. And then last but not least, this is a much smaller story, but I saved it for last because it segues into the next episode. Charlie, uh, so I mentioned at the beginning, he's looking for Claire's things. He's looking for her diary, he tells Kate. Uh, he and Kate find out that Sawyer has it, and then Charlie takes it back after a quick exchange of blows. Um Maybe I should have written that differently. Um, no, it, actually, they hit each other. And uh, I, that was funny because I don't think I've ever seen like Sawyer deck Charlie in any other uh, sort of – I mean, who's punched each other at this point so far? You just don't think of Charlie as the kind of guy who gets involved in sort of the the top-level Jack, Saeed, Sawyer scuffles. Right. No, you don't. But he just clocks him. And then, and then, of course, Charlie says – you hit like a ponce, <laughs> which I, which is a great line. But it also it also speaks to it also speaks to Charlie's character. You know, don't Claire's the is the 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 character that would yeah. make him get the way he did. Yeah. Yep. Don't stand between Charlie and anything that he can do for Claire. Back in the caves, Kate consoles Charlie. He's still traumatized by Claire's kidnapping. When Kate leaves, Charlie tries desperately not to read Claire's diary. And eventually packs it into one of her bags. However, in the next scene, we see that he has caved in and he is reading the diary. Uh, in it, she says that she likes Charlie and that he makes her feel safe. Then he reads something that causes him to rush to Jack and Saeed. He shows them a passage that mentions dreaming about a black rock. Since Rousseau also mentioned a black rock to Saeed, he surmises that this may be where the maps are pointing. And Charlie says it may even be where Claire is. Lastly, we go to Locke and Boone. This is after everything else in the episode has taken place. Locke is using his dog whistle to call for Vincent. Uh, so Vincent, I'm sorry, I probably didn't, I didn't put this in the earlier summary, but they didn't actually find Vincent after he ran off. So this whole thing with the bear happened and Vincent was still out there. So Locke is using the dog whistle to call for Vincent. They hear something rustling in the trees, but instead of the dog, a pale and confused Claire emerges from the jungle. Boom. These uh, The way we're structuring this podcast with two episodes per episode has left us on some pretty darn good cliffhangers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> because it could have been we talked about this and then the, the next episode in, uh, in a podcast episode. But the way it shakes out, you have to wait another week to get to it. Got to wait a week. Yep. So any any closing thoughts with either the, the B story or anything else about the Michael Walt story? I really like this episode. It felt, episode. It, it felt very... Uh, meaty in terms mm-hmm. of the flashback had a lot of purpose that goes beyond just the episode. Definitely. And it beyond did. even the characters, but a little more even like mythology, you know? Yeah. It adds depth to both Michael and Walt. It, it sort of provides a little more context to their actions on the Island. You're starting to see the stuff with Locke and Boone sort of flesh out. It carried over the stuff from the previous episode very well without yeah. overburdening it. They brought back characters like, Charlie and Sawyer, who might have been a little neglected in, in the previous episode, and they mm-hmm. gave us the big reveal of Claire at the end. So, lots to like about this yeah. episode. I really starts to move, starts to get moving pretty quickly. Yep. Okay. Um, so, we'll do superlatives. 
you want to go first with these or you want me to go first? I think you should go first since I went first last episode. Here's my quote of the episode. It's very, very tangential to most of what happens, but I just like it. Uh, This is Saeed and Shannon's response to the raft idea. Saeed says, the chances of surviving the rough waters, the odds of finding a shipping lane. And Shannon says, and I get really seasick. (laughs) Like you're going, like we're going to invite you on the, like when she said that, I was like, why did you think you were going to get invited on the raft? (laughs) Well, or even to to that aspect, is she really going to stay behind as the only person on the island if everybody else takes a raft to leave? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like think she'll handle it. Yeah. Um, Did you have an idea for another, for your favorite quote of the episode? So I have a tie for two. Okay. And uh, one was that just Hurley mentioning that they're now playing golf for the last deodorant sticks. Oh, yes. Really got to me. But then later when Charlie hands over the diary to say the thing about the black rock, Jack's like, you read her diary and he just goes, I know I'm bloody scum. Just read it. (laughs) Yeah. The deodorant thing. That's funny. That's one of those things that by the time you get to season three or so, you just don't want to think about the fact that none of them were wearing deodorant anymore. Well, it's um, also, it's also one of those things where like, as, as, as a person on this Island, I don't know if I care about deodorant at this point. I, yeah, that's a good point too. Like the last of the deodorants. Does anybody really think like, Oh, maybe I'll get rescued just before the deodorant sticks run out. <laughs> right. And then everything will be okay. <laughs> like there's no, there's no utility to them aside from smelling no. better than worse, which at this point, who gives a crap? Yeah. Especially if um, we're, if we're led to believe previous episodes, then Michael's already made some makeshift showers in the caves near the waterfall. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, my uh, favorite moment of the episode was uh, when Walt uh, summons the bird to crash into the window. Uh, Or either that or Walt throwing the knife correctly, just because of what uh, that's setting up for that character. Um, So I thought that was really cool. And I also like the, um, you know, the immediate response of of Brian, the uh, the flashback character who just sort of looks, he like glances over at Walt and then glances at the textbook and the fact that that bird was in the textbook. Just uh, one of those creepy lost moments that uh, gives you the chills. So that was my favorite. What was yours? Those are good picks, but I went with the humor aspect. And again, like the montage with Sawyer trying to smash the briefcase, I love the the scene of Charlie just trying so hard not to read the diary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like picking it up and put it back down. Opening that was it, a good one. putting it back down and yeah. just trying so, so super hard and then eventually failing. But yeah. it's a relatable, but really hilarious moment. Yeah. And, and it seems like that too. It's like, it's that it's the one, um, you know, the, the gin and, and Hurley one from the last episode too, where it, I, I just, uh, I, I'm impressed by how these characters or these, sorry, these actors can switch so well and often, you know, so quickly from, comedic to dramatic you know they all seem capable of that that transition you know you get some really uh intense dramatic scenes with charlie but you also get some really funny stuff so it was a good choice and in it actually kind of speaks to the writer of this episode david fury who again is one of my favorites from buffy he's he's always had some episodes where there's the you can always expect a little bit of humor like this in episodes Mm -hmm. he wrote of buffy too so that reminded me of him very uh very distinctly yeah, and he was a, he was he was uh, one of the writers that won uh, an Emmy uh, for for his episode. Um, so yeah, uh, and now for asshole idiot of the episode, I have if we're if we're going by everything in the episode, I have Susan slash Brian. 
I think Susan goes into the annals of one of the most hated characters on Lost, um, just based primarily, just based entirely on all the conversations I've had with people. Um, I don't know. I mean, some sometimes their actions are understandable, but other times, I guess it's hard to separate from the fact that we're kind of coming from Michael's perspective. So I don't know. But then I think that Brian was a bigger asshole than she was, again, for basically just wanting to abandon his adopted son as soon as Susan was dead. Um, so I think he probably edges her out a little bit. Yeah. Again, I, I'm not if I'm not counting flashbacks, I got to give it to Michael for his behavior on the island. Mm, true. Just because, man, was he being so irrational. It's oh, such a crazy. Yeah. Making yeah. no friends. So yeah. on and so forth. And of course, she, the. He gets a lot of redemption with his stuff in the flashback, but right. if we're going by Still. Islanders only, like I am for for now, I might give that up. Who knows? But I'm <laughs> on the kick now, so let's keep that going. I'm going. With we're staying on the island, yeah. Then Michael probably, yeah, good choice. Nothing again about music in this episode. I'm actually getting a little depressed. That's been so long since I've had much to talk about with the music, but uh, I promise we will get to many, many more episodes that have incidental music that's worth talking about. Uh, the parts of the score that, uh, that are noteworthy. Um, so hang on to that for now, but for this episode, I don't really see that much. Um, you know, that's not to detract at all from Michael Giacchino's, uh, score. I mean, ev- every episode is fantastic. Every episode of lost, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the music is, uh, cinematic, you know, it's like movie quality music in every single episode. So it's not to say that it's not great. Uh, but just I don't have anything uh, that particularly stands out to to comment on there. Yeah, I just think this is this to me is uh, a, a standout episode, a standout performance for Harold Perrineau. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes through not only, like you said, the physical transformation. I mean, not that it's I mean, it's not a revolution. You know, cut his beard. But that has to be paired with uh his his acting range in in going through everything he did in all the flashbacks which cover a huge span of time you know 10 years uh that he has to be doing different scenes from his life and really difficult stuff anything else you wanted to say about special nothing else to say uh actually in the lost timeline the show went on a two-week hiatus but we will not be doing such a thing we will be back (laughs) next week to talk homecoming and outlaws all right but before Sounds we get out of here, Ben, as usual, plugs and whatever else you want to throw. All right. Why don't you go first this time? All right. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at KFord13. You can also follow this show on Twitter at LostPod. Anytime a new episode is published, we will put it up there if that's the way you choose to go and get it. You can also leave feedback there at LostPod. Anything you want to say about the episodes, questions, comments, problems, whatever you have. And if you want to have some correspondence that's longer than 280 characters or you just plain don't like Twitter, feel free to throw <laughs> us an email at lostpodquestions at gmail.com. And all the back episodes can be found at entertherealworld.com. That's a real like a film reel. And I guess you can leave us a review and all that other fun stuff wherever you get the, the podcast if you wish. Yes. All right, please. go ahead. All right, and I'm going to use my give my usual plug for uh, my comic book that I uh, write co-write and uh, draw – with my partner Marjorie. It is N-E-O-P-O-L-A-T-I-N-E. Uh, we are at www.neopolitine.com if you want to go directly to the comic and check it out. Uh, also, we have neopolitine at gmail.com, and we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we're getting into the big time with this. I'm now prepared to officially announce that we are going to be at Baltimore Comic Con uh, this September 
with our first ever Artist Alley table for Neapolitan. Uh, so if you live in that area, please come check us out. And um, we might even have a couple other special appearances there. So definitely uh, the, the check has been cashed. So we are going to have that table. And uh, I'd love for you to come and check out our, our stuff and go online, check out the comic and leave us some feedback. And Baltimore Comic Con, I hear every year, is one of the best cons in the country. It's mm-hmm. one that's it's very specific to comic book writers and artists as opposed to your Wizard Worlds and stuff, which may have a little more of the go the celebrity route. This one's very much for comic book stuff. So cool. Yeah, that's that's yeah. super cool. You guys are doing that. I've never been and I've always wanted to go. And, and they've always um, uh, at least uh, up until recently. The timing just hasn't worked out because with my job, I'm I'm so uh, tied down so many weekends in the fall uh, because of our, our campus's uh, football season, of course, and all the, the, the beginning of the year stuff that has to happen when you work on a college campus. So, uh, But the, the timing worked out just right this time, and it couldn't be better. We're actually – our goal is to have the second issue of the comic uh, finished and online in time for that convention. And I know you can buy the first issue on Comixology. How much is it, men? That's right. 99 cents for 70 pages of action. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> what a bargain. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, we really just want to get people to read it and get into it. Uh, just uh, hopefully have a positive response to it. It's an, it's, uh, a, an action adventure story, but it's also uh, appropriate for all ages. We don't dumb it down, so we hope that everybody can enjoy it. Uh, so, yeah, please check it out. Yes, and thanks everybody for listening to this week's episode. We will be back with another episode of From Broadcast Depth next week. All right, we'll see you next time.